It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the Acast app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gittler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number seven in our series for 2021. And today's date is Friday, March the 19th. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. First, I'll be talking to entertainment entrepreneur and public speaker Daryl Lovegrove about how his business is managing in the pandemic. The key, he says, is resilience. And I'll be talking to IFM Investors economist Alex Joyner about how the economy is travelling giving a sharp analysis and realistic perspective to all the latest data. But now let's talk to Daryl Lovegrove. How do you run an entertainment business, particularly in this climate Mm -hmm. where you've got lockdowns and coronavirus, etc.? How do you do it? Oh, well, in, in this climate, you can't. You don't. All you can do is just cut your costs absolutely to the barest bones and just simply use all those weeks and months that I did during COVID lockdown just to gently remind people of your existence. That's, that's all you could do because when that market out there just doesn't exist, there's no point in putting marketing dollars into saying, hey, remember us when it all comes back because the world has just, just changed enormously. Even now, when there are green shoots here in Australia and, you know, we're slowly coming back. It is so slow. It's breathtaking. I, I had a huge event for two weeks' time in Brisbane Convention Centre. 
And it was like the old days. It was like, I looked at it and went, wow, this is the kind of gig I used to get all the time. You know, well, how exciting. And we built two weeks into it and it was going to be, I was seeing it, it was in front of 500 people at the Brisbane Convention Centre. I was going to be a, do a big, of all things, a country and Western theme, I, something I'd never done. I was looking very forward to it. And, and just going full tilt and, and everything. And the next thing is, I'm sorry, but we, we've cancelled the whole gig. The whole thing's just been cancelled. And I realised, wow, that's indicative of, of where we still are. The answer is you can't during that time um, in that industry that um, you really need to, to just massively lower your expectations and your costs. So luckily I've had um, something to fall back on. Um, I did, I was, as my grandparents and my, my parents told me to do when I left school, and that's it's all very well this arts world you want to get into, Daryl, but you need to fall back on something. And so I did, I, I became a trained primary school teacher. So I've actually been teaching for the last year. And I've loved it, being back in the classroom, because there's no better audience than 30 kids who sit in front of you going, all right, what do you got for us? You better be good. <laughs> I've been a casual, casual school teacher, and, and it's been, been terrific. It's kept me on my toes, kept me performing, because I perform in front of the kids. I don't really teach. I make sure that they're having a great time. And yeah. so, so could, I say, could one say that your work as a school teacher has actually honed your business as a performer? No, it's just, no it's, it was always pretty honed. I would say it has just kept me sharp. It's kept me thinking about, hang on, I'm in front of an audience here. Full, come on, full, full performance here today. Let's keep it up. Let's get the energy levels up. Let's, you don't want any kids looking at you as if they're very bored and that you're a bit of a silly man or whatever, you know, because you, the kids are going to be very harsh. Now you want them to, to go, come out going, wow, you're a bit different, Mr. Lovegrove. You're very cool. And I'm happy with that. Now, uh, you also do... Uh speaking speaking of public conferences and stuff like that there's been no speaking gigs for the last 12 13 40 months so i haven't been doing any speaking at all no one has but except for those who, who who have chosen to do it virtually and that's one thing i've been very reticent to do i i'm a performer i'm a big performer i i, I um i sing opera and i and i'm a bit very visual got a big presentation and i just i haven't even entertained the idea of bringing it down into a zoom um situation i just think it would just be very i could be hypercritical there but i've seen some people do a pretty good job of it but even then even the best i still look at it go yeah it's good you're doing an amazing job but i just not into the zoom thing even as public speaker yeah i i, I mean i could tell the story to actually tell you the truth here i'm saying that and, and and i'm actually going to i've actually been asked to do a virtual presentation later um this year in about two months time for a hong kong client uh, big Asian conference thing, and I've thought about it. I thought, look, I've been I've been saying no for so long. Maybe if this thing drags on and on, I'm not going to have a choice. So I finally entertained the idea. But I, ha- I even then, I'm I'm quite happy to pull out if I have to because it's just something I just I'm not excited about. It doesn't excite me at all. And I want to be excited about things. You know, I don't want to do it just for the hell of it. It struck me that um, particularly when you are working as an entertainment promoter and business person you really have to be so adaptable in this climate you do, you do. yep I, I absolutely do and by not being involved in zoom presentations is me not being adaptable i'm the first to admit it um i guess it's because i've got something to fall back on that i'm enjoying so much as well if i didn't have that maybe if i didn't have a choice then i probably would have gone into it straight away 
but I do have a choice and I'm, I just look at that medium and I go, I don't think it's for me. I, I, I mean, I could do it and I could pass it and I, you know, but I don't ever want to do anything where it's a little bit underwhelming. That's my reputation is that I do things differently from everybody else. And I take great pride in that. I'm not an MC. My, when I MC, I, I'm a very different type of MC than anybody else. When I present, present a, a keynote, I'm very different than anybody else because of what I can incorporate. Well, the other, the other issue too is, that, I mean, how do you see it panning out? I mean, uh, we've got vaccines coming and uh, Australia's doing pretty well compared to the rest of the world. Yep. How do you see it panning out in terms yep. of the entertainment industry? The other issue is, yep. will it be different compared to pre-COVID? I have, I've given up coming up with kind of solid answers because I was, uh, I didn't, I, I'm in the same position when, Osama bin Laden attacked those two buildings. We just opened the three waiters up in the United States only seven months before. And we were starting to sell a few shows and things were starting to build momentum when 9-11 happened. And I was back in Los Angeles a month after that, wondering what on earth we're going to do because the phone stopped ringing. The, everyone has just, in America especially, had just said, no, or look, we're, we're, the world's changed. And you know, so many gigs we had booked were postponed or cancelled. No one wanted to fly. I was in a six-month period of, of what we were going to pull out of the United States. But we hung in there. We hung in there. We went back to the basics. We did call. We did cold calling. We, we, we just tried to get everyone to look at the promo video. To, and, then, and, and then it did rectify itself relatively quickly after about three or four months. It started to move again. This time, oh, and also J, GFC. I, I, um, left the, I sold out of the three waiters in um, 2009, you know, literally I, I was, I was in the selling process when the Lehman brothers collapsed. It was a bad time to sell, but uh, you know, I, I, I needed to get out. I needed to do something else. And I started my, opened my new business, Love Grove Entertainment in um, sort of March, April, May of 2010. And uh, the worst time, and, but you know, you have to believe that it's going to pick up again pretty quickly. It didn't, but you know, I didn't know that. And that wouldn't have, but those sorts of things, I can't get in my way. I have to assume, um, hope for the best and prepare for the worst. And, and now I've got this. So it, it, GFC was a, probably even more of a killer uh, than, than 9-11 in the sense that it changed the whole paradigm of corporate entertainment. Uh, you know, for years and years, big companies were happy to spend $300,000, $400,000 going into a major hotel, a major ballroom, and having a huge night where they wine and dine their staff, their best clients, the whole thing and have a big awards nights or big nights celebrating their, just their existence. And then after 2009, 2010, it all of a sudden very quickly became office drinks as opposed to the night at the Hilton Hotel. You know what I mean? And, uh, and, and, and the, it devastated the industry. It's never been the same again ever since. So now here I'm in the third crisis. I, I look at it as the third crisis that I've faced over the years. And making predictions is kind of, that's fun and everything, but, but you're going to probably get them wrong. So, but I'll make a prediction anyway for the hell of it. I think it's just going to continually be very, very slow. I don't see any any kind of momentum building up till it probably be about July or August, and hopefully some kind of Christmas season will will come back. I well, I would say that the pattern with uh, whether it's nine eleven, whether it's GFC, or with COVID, I would say is that stuff eventually writes itself. Mm. Eventually, mm. but. You just need to have the perseverance and patience to That's sit with it. Would you agree with that? That's exactly it. That's all I can do. That's all I've done in the past 
is to really try to keep your state of mind as positive as possible. Be prepared for very long uh, recovery and uh, persevere with it. And uh, that's what I, I talk about in my book very much so is, is resilience is a massively, massively important component of anyone who's running their business. The fact of the matter is, is that in this world, the, the new norm is constant change. They, they're, they're, it's going to always change their goalposts and your market's going to change. Their tastes are going to continue to change. The infrastructure of which you do everything is continually changing. And you have to adapt, adapt. You have to work out what, where is your customers eyes where they're looking now this month oh have they changed so the eyes are, are, what kind of interface are they looking at the moment um and and it's always changing and you're going to have to very you know in this time of of uh, this period of, of of history be patient see where it's going but stay in there try not to overspend too much and be prepared you know for the slings and arrows that are kind of come your way and if you can do that you know you're giving yourself half a chance to hopefully succeed in, in the next era of buoyancy of, of some kind of movement. Well, that would be a big lesson for any business, wouldn't it? Well, of course, absolutely. And, and, and having been through now three crises, you know, it, it is cyclical. It just is. And you've got to deal with the bad times as well as you deal with the good times. And it's, it's your passion, isn't it? If you, if you really can't see yourself doing something else, then you, you will hopefully be able to stay with it in some form or another. That's all the advice I can ever give to anybody is that, look, the good times will come back when nobody really knows. But if you can stay in there and continually can try to convince people that you have a product or a service that they want or need, put it out there um, as often as you can, then continue to do that. It's all you can really do. So many things we can't control. The one thing you can control is your own output, the, the brand that you put across, how often you put that across. Uh, and those are things you've just got to focus on. Daryl, that's very wise words and wishing you all the best of luck. Thank, Thank you very much, Leon, and, and uh, all the best with all your listeners uh, um, as we cope with this new paradigm. And now let's talk to IFM Investors economist Alex Joyner. Alex, uh, how do you see the economy panning out now? Yeah, so we, we got the uh, December quarter national accounts and they were they were instructive, I guess, uh, on a number of fronts. So really a story of rebound uh, at the moment, um, rebounding from you know the restrictions that were placed on the economy to, to fend off the public health crisis. And we really saw uh, some good numbers, but not, I wouldn't say great numbers from the national accounts. You know, we had 3.1% quarter on quarter real GDP growth. And that was, you know, outstanding at the headline level compared to other countries. Now you've got to put it in some context that 3.1% came as we were sort of bouncing out of a, a very weak Q3. So Australia sort of had this weaker third quarter result than other advanced economies, and then a stronger fourth quarter result than other advanced economies, just because of the way the public health crisis was panning out. So Australia was doing relatively well in combating the coronavirus in uh, in the December quarter, whereas other advanced economies were doing worse. So that 3.1% that we got in terms of growth compared with the median advanced economy uh, outcome of around about 1%. So that was good. But again, Adding a little bit of a context to that, it was a story of rebound. 1.6 percentage points of the 3.1% growth was Victoria. And obviously we know that Victoria was just bouncing back out of some pretty draconian restrictions that we saw uh, earlier in the year. And then we had another 0.5 percentage points coming from agricultural output or farm GDP 
uh, as it is in the national accounts. And that, that was a bit of an unexpected tailwind. There was a, a bumper crop record, absolute record uh, exports in that sector. And that led to farm GDP expanding at, again, a record rate in that fourth quarter. So that added as well. So you sort of got 2.1% uh, economic growth out of 3.1% without really trying. It was always sort of going to happen. The, the economy was always going to happen. It wasn't really due to, to, to economic policy. It was due more to the lifting of those restrictions and then and then the farm sector. So we're doing well. Obviously, we haven't started to roll out the vaccine and that is now starting, uh, starting to be a bit of cause for consternation and, and, and wondering, you know, just when we are going to, to get these things done. But as the data is playing out, you know, the, the Australian economy does look to be recovering relatively well uh, when it's compared to other, other advanced economies in the stage that they're at. The other particular highlight has just been the labour market. And, you know, you can criticise the JobKeeper program in terms of just exactly how it, it operates and who it, who it uh, advantages. But we have seen that allow for material labour market repair. The unemployment rate is 6.4% as of January. And, you know, no economist would have been forecasting that earlier in the year. Uh, it's been a, a very good result that's been characterised by employment levels that are actually uh, the, the same or roughly a little bit ahead of what we saw uh, heading into the crisis and a participation rate that is very high. Now, we still have a long way to go on that, but certainly, you know, we are in a much better place than, than we might have expected, say, when we were forecasting this back in, say, June or July last year. That said, the unemployment figures showed that the major growth in jobs was in Victoria, whereas the other yep. states weren't performing that well. And that's a bit of a worry because eventually it'll level out in Victoria. And that tells us that the rest of the country is not performing that well. Well, that's the thing. We've sort of got a, the, the important piece for the labour market is to transition from rebound uh, of employment. So people that stepped out of the labour market when the public health restrictions were in place and then step back once they've been, once those restrictions have lifted. And then to sustainable recovery, employment growth. And that's where I think the key question still remains around how the labour market will perform over the say next 12 to 18 months and how we're going to get down to very low levels of the unemployment rate just as the economy starts to transition to this you know sustainable growth uh, going forward and that's where that's where I worry I guess because to my mind we are simply recovering to an economy that was you know struggling a bit as we entered the pandemic and, and we're starting to struggle to generate jobs now the advantage the labor market actually has is that the working age population growth in that space is extremely low because we've stopped importing labor. Obviously, the borders are still closed. So, you know, we don't have to create that many jobs to get the labor market down right now. Now, the government is starting to talk about migration to fill vacancies. That's not going to happen in the near term, but that will be a threat to the labor market recovery. The other threat to the labour market recovery is the ending of the JobKeeper initiative. So that happens uh, later this month, in, later, later in March. Treasury has highlighted that that could put around about 100,000 jobs at risk. I have seen some uh, labour market economists uh, in the, in the uh, well, I guess, the academic uh, sector suggest that this might be higher, could be between 100,000 and 250,000 jobs, but we'll certainly be keeping our eye on the unemployment rate in those sort of post-March figures uh, from, the, from, the, from the ABS, and we might actually see it in the, in the weekly payrolls data as well. And that will be a bit of a wrinkle in the recovery over that sort of mid-year 
period. The other thing that is a, is a changing of the narrative, I guess, from the Reserve Bank is that in his speech uh, earlier today, actually, uh, Governor Lowe changed the way that the RBA subtly talks about the unemployment rate. It moved to more of a Fed, uh, the way the Fed speaks. So not talking about full employment, not talking about the Nehru and uh, the natural rate of unemployment where we might get wages rising, but maximum employment. And that's that's something he hasn't actually said before and really implies that we're going to have to get the unemployment rate to four, uh, below four maybe, before we see wages rise and then before that translates to inflation. And that's that was the, the Reserve Bank governor today just reiterating that you know policy rates will be in place uh, at current levels until that occurs. Uh, they want to see that in the data. So that's going to be a long time. And, and the recovery in the labour market will take a long time. Well, indeed, the uh, the RBA has kept rates as said it's keeping rates on hold at zero point one percent for three years, meaning it doesn't expect inflation to rise in that period, meaning that wages won't rise, meaning that unemployment unemployment numbers won't get much down to the four percent in that period. Well, that's right. It's um, and it will be interesting to see how uh, over that period, when the the Reserve Bank is forecasting a downtrend in the unemployment rate. Uh, how migration does pick up or if migration does pick up and labour supply picks up because I, I've made the point uh, many a time that the, the, the RBA couldn't get the unemployment rate below 5% pre-pandemic just because of labour supply. Uh, we were creating a lot more jobs than other economies. We're creating double the jobs uh, that were seen in the US, sort of gailed for the economy size. But we also just had twice the amount of population growth, a very high participation rate. So we had a lot of people coming into the labour market to fill those jobs. So we just couldn't get that labour market slack uh, the way we wanted it. And I, I've noted many times that the Reserve Bank actually has never been successful in the inflation targeting period to get the unemployment rate to 4%. Uh, the last time we saw a 4% unemployment rate was just before the global financial crisis and at the peak of the resources boom. And that was when interest rates were actually rising, but was due to fiscal spending or fiscal transfers, I would say. You know, this was the transfer of huge resources sector profits to income taxes, uh, seeing everyone seeing everyone's household income rise, disposable household income rise due to tax cuts. And that was what was generating these very tight labour markets, along with the resources boom that was dragging in people from all over the economy to to feed the resources investment cycle. That's what got us to 4% unemployment rate, not low interest rates. So I struggle to see how that's going to happen uh, in isolation this time around when... The argument would be, even though the uh, the Reserve Bank is is going to leave policy rates on hold at, at you know near enough to zero for an extended period of time, the fiscal side will start contracting. It will start doing that naturally uh, with the fiscal stabilizers, but also you know the government has started to make noises that you know it will be a little bit more careful on the fiscal side, and that's just contractionary fiscal policy. It might not be it might not be proactive. Um, contractionary fiscal policy, but it will be in effect fiscal policy as money comes out of the economy, and that's that's you know the job keepers part of that situation, and and the move lower in the job seeker payment as well, even though the the uh, the number has been boosted ongoing, it's, a, it's still a shift down from pandemic levels, so we'll we'll just have less money in the economy, and that's why so I struggle to see 
why the Australian economy will outperform going forward, as the Reserve Bank suggests. Because, you know, maybe in the first half of 2021, we'll see some good growth numbers. Uh, that, that, again, reflects the recovery, and it reflects uh, household balance sheets that have a lot of cash. So this is a lot of cash from government transfers in the, on the one hand, but also the restrictive conditions of the economy where people haven't been able to spend as they otherwise might have. They haven't gone overseas on holiday. They'll spend that money at home, et cetera, et cetera. That'll be a tailwind for the first half. I don't know what picks up that tailwind with the second half. Business investment doesn't look like it's going to pick up materially. And the self-sustaining nature of the recovery that we need to get isn't there. Uh, Now, I would note the Reserve Bank has uh, three and a quarter percent uh, forecasts in, in its forecast horizon, that, that's basically um, the recovery in population growth. That's not self-sustaining. That's, uh, that's just getting more people to come to Australia and have a, have a bigger economy rather than proactive policies that we need from the government to sustain economic recovery going forward. So what you're saying is uh, while the uh, GDP numbers look hopeful, they don't point to any massive uplift in the economy moving ahead. Well, that's right. They look hopeful. They look, they look. Uh, you know, we're, we're glad that we've recovered. There's no doubt about that. But what, what I would put forward as an argument is what are we recovering to? All the fiscal stimulus uh, and spending of taxpayers' money uh, and low interest rates isn't fixing the problems that we had, the structural problems that we had heading into this crisis. And these problems uh, wasn't just an Australian thing. It is, a, is a, an advanced economy, global uh, situation where there is not enough productivity growth. Uh, there is not enough incentive or uh, a good enough outlook for businesses to invest. And then many countries have these uh, demographic challenges over and above that. None of these None of these factors that have held potential growth rates down uh, in the post-GFC period have been fixed. And I make the point um, that Australian per capita GDP growth from the 1970s to 2008, so just before the GFC, uh, per capita GDP growth was 2%. You know, we had a lot of reforms, we had deregulation, we had technology, all sort of driving productivity then we had the resources boom, uh, which helped living standards as well. So we had this GDP growth rate that was 2%. Since the, pan- uh, since the global financial crisis, that has halved to 1% growth. Uh, so we, we never really, you could put, put the argument forward that we have never really, in terms of growth rates, recovered from the GFC. And I don't see anything that has changed in, in a policy sense through this pandemic that would push us off that course, that would make the economy better than it was going into the pandemic. So that's why I'm a little bit more, I guess, circumspect about about economic growth rate on that medium-term basis. Well, Alex, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure, Liam. Anytime. So what's happening in the news? Supercharged by the need to secure local supplies of fresh vegetables during the pandemic, some vertical farms are now branching out into other high-margin areas, such as medical cannabis, health supplements and cosmetics. South Korean startup Farmate Co is among a proliferation of indoor urban growers that saw sales jump during COVID-19. It's looking to increase sales by almost 50% to 90 billion won, that's 79 million US dollars this year, partly by boosting production of medical and cosmetic-based plants such as ginseng, Centella asiatica and Artemisia campestris. In August, the company joined the country's first regulation-free zone for medical cannabis growing and processing hemp. Other vertical farms are also using the technology to meet rising demand for stringent quality control in medical and cosmetic applications, such as Denmark's International Cosmetic Science Centre, Poland's Vertigo Farms, and California-based MedMen Enterprises. 
Farmate currently grows about 1.2 tonnes of salad greens per day on less than an acre or 0.5 hectares of land, spread across locations in three cities in South Korea, including in a busy subway station in South Korea's capital. It's one of the top local lettuce producers for the fast food chains including Subway Restaurants, Burger King Corp and KFC Corp. Sales rose 30% last year. That's a traditional market for vertical farms, guaranteed delivery of quality control, fresh produce that needs to reach the consumer quickly, regardless of weather or seasons. These advantages were underlined as pandemic supply disruptions and unreliable harvests pushed global foods prices to a six-year high in February. And in opening remarks at the Melbourne Business Analytics Conference, RBA Governor Philip Lowe said the economic recovery has been quicker and stronger than expected, but we still have a long way to go. The unemployment rate is too high and inflation and wage growth are lower than the RBA would like. One piece of the recovery yet to click into gear is business investment, Dr Lowe said. And Reserve Bank of Australia minutes for the March rate meeting echo recent marks by Governor Lowe, suggesting there will be no rate increase for a considerable time, at least not until wages reach 3%, and that's not expected until 2024. And Australia's claim that China breached international trading rules by imposing tariffs on Bali last year will be referred to a dispute panel to be established by the World Trade Organization. Talks between Australia and China over Bali tariffs have failed. Beijing imposed tariffs on Australian-grown barley in 2020, claiming farmers had dumped the ground in China for cheaper than it cost to produce. Australia denied any anti-competitive behaviour, and in December referred the tariffs to the World Trade Organization, which acts as an independent umpire. Trade Minister Dan Tian said talks between China and Australia had failed and the government would now request a dispute panel to be established by the WTO. And credit ratings agency Moody's warns a growing number of borrowers will struggle to meet their mortgage payments in the coming months as COVID-19 emergency support schemes come to an end. Despite the huge financial shock caused by the pandemic, mortgage arrears caused by the pandemic fell during the December half as the economy was shielded by a wave of taxpayer support including the job seeker wage subsidy and banks allowed customers to defer their payments. But with much of this support set to to be withdrawn at the end of this month, a Moody's report on Monday predicted more borrowers would fall behind on their loans in the first half of this year, a view shared by the major banks. The increase is expected despite the buoyant housing market making it easier for some struggling borrowers to sell their property as a way of clearing their debts. Moody said it expected the situation would turn around and delinquency rates would start to improve again as the economic recovery gained momentum in 2021. And the value of loans written to heavily indebted property buyers has almost doubled in less than two years, putting pressure on the prudential regulator to intervene in the red-hot Australian property market. Data for the December quarter from the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority showed the value of loans of property buyers with a debt-to-income ratio of greater than six times has risen by 89% from $11.4 billion in March 2019 to $21.5 billion in December 2020, sparking debate over whether riskier lending is starting to re-emerge. Analysis by UBS economist George Tharanow found the share of new loans that were more than four times the borrower's income rose from 57.7% to 59.3%, the highest level since the figures started in 2018. Mr Tharanow said loans with an LVR above 80% also rose from 39.9% to 42%, the highest since 2008. Rhizome risk consultant, former APRA credit risk specialist Will Peterson, said the data showed an increase in the proportion of heavily indebted borrowing as a percentage of new loans, from a, new, from a two-year low of 14.3% to 16.9%. Also on Tuesday, figures from the Australian Bureau of Statistics showed average capital city house prices rose 3% in the December quarter, with Sydney prices up 3%, and Melbourne prices rising 3.4%. 
The rising number of home buyers up to their ears in debt has occurred as property prices delivered their fastest monthly growth in 17 years. Borrowers with high levels of debt to income experience high levels of mortgage stress and are more likely to default. Most of the big four banks will require manual approval from the credit department for loans over seven times debt to income. The spike in borrowers with high levels of debt to income over the December quarter, 26.3% year on year, sets up the prospect of an even bigger jump in the number in the next quarterly figures, with home buyers needing to borrow more to keep up with the price growth. And employers say a lack of skilled workers has emerged as a major obstacle to businesses ramping up operations and hiring more Australians and getting access to qualified migrants will be a critical part of the country's post-COVID recovery. Despite the past fast-paced economic rebound over the second half of 2020, the economy remains smaller than it was pre-pandemic and unemployment higher. More than 1.2 million Australians were on JobSeeker in January compared with 725,000 on unemployment benefits before the pandemic struck, the Department of Social Services says. And the cessation of JobKeeper wage subsidies should make state and territory leaders think twice before they rush to close their borders in response to a COVID-19 outbreak, Treasurer Josh Frydenberg says. In a speech delivered on Tuesday night to the annual dinner of the Business Council of Australia, Mr Frydenberg said the federal government's capacity to pick up the tab for the economic ruin caused by the closures can no longer be relied upon. As the health risks abate over the course of this year, when the vaccines are rolled out, the states need to be more mindful of economic risks associated with border closures. The $90 billion JobKeeper wage subsidy and COVID-19 supplement to the JobSeeker unemployment benefit will both cease at the end of March. Leading labour market economist, University of Melbourne Professor Jeff Borland, says up to 250,000 Australians could lose their jobs when the JobKeeper wage subsidy program finishes at the end of this month, and that the expiry of the support payments looms as a key known unknown and has a potential derail a powerful post-recession labour market recovery. And the Reserve Bank of Australia expects small business failures to rise as pandemic measures are phased out and access to finance remains tight for the nation's small to medium enterprise sector. RBA Assistant Governor Christopher Kent said the central bank will continue to pay close attention to small businesses' access to finance and their prospects more broadly amid an uncertain economic outlook. He said while a wide range of monetary, fiscal and private sector measures have provided support for SMEs over the past year, in many cases obviating the need to take out additional debt, SMEs remain reluctant to take out new loans and continue to face difficulty in accessing finance. And a potential wave of legal claims over hundreds of millions of dollars of building work disrupted by Melbourne's COVID-19 lockdowns could cripple the sector and damage the state's economic recovery. The building industry's peak body, the Master Builders Association, says the issue of liquidated damages, compensation payments for building jobs delivered late, presents a legal minefield for everyone in the sector, from the multi-billion dollar corporate construction giants to the smallest subcontractors and suppliers. The building industry was allowed to keep working with some restrictions for most of 2020, but was ordered into pilot light mode in August and September, with sites only allowed to have 25% of the workforce on the job. When February's five-day circuit breaker lockdown was imposed, the industry estimates the shutdown could cost more than $450 million in economic activity each day, including $63 million in lost wages. The disruption has delayed completion of large and small projects, and although the MBA says it is not aware of any claims for liquidated damages being lodged so far, it appears there could be big trouble on the way for the industry. NBA legal advisers are concerned that government ordered partial shutdowns of building sites and other construction activities may not be considered an act of God or force majeure under many contracts, leaving builders liable to pay at claims over projects disrupted by the pandemic. 
And Andrew Forrest has doubled down on his ambitions to turn Fortescue Metals Group green with a commitment to being carbon neutral in just nine years that involves the company becoming a major producer of green hydrogen on top of its iron ore operations. Australia's richest man said that Fortescue revised target was operational carbon neutrality by 2030, brought forward by 10 years, mm. and well ahead of the 2050 target set by iron ore mining rivals Rio Tinto and BHP. To achieve the target, Fortescue will develop green electricity, green hydrogen and green ammonia projects in Australia through its wholly owned subsidiary, Fortescue Future Industries. Dr Forrest said Fortescue remained committed to its iron ore business, but predicted it could one day be dwarfed by the company's green energy operations. But the Morrison government and its energy minister, Angus Taylor, won't back the Forrest power station unless it receives approval from Australia's independent market operator, which has deemed it too big in its current form. Mr Taylor refused to rule out pushing ahead with plans to spend taxpayer money on a similar plant at Curry Curry, even with the Forrest offer on the table and the mining billionaire saying its power station would be built within two years of gaining approval. And a consortium of high-profile companies, including Coles and Nestle, is planning to build a soft plastics recycling plant where chocolate bar wrappers or chip bags can be broken down and remade into new food-safe wrappings. This Australian first circular soft plastic recycling plant is set to be built in Victoria, with the consortium preparing to kickstart the project in the coming months. The technical, economic and environmental benefits of such a plant are being assessed as part of a feasibility study done by two high-profile retailers in partnership with a bevy of multinationals and local technology companies, including the $36 billion Dutch packaging manufacturer Lyondal Basel, local biochemical startup Lysella and recycling company QNU. And collapsed supply chain financier Greensill Capital has swung the axe with all its Australian staff losing their jobs and 500 staff in its UK office expected to be retrenched, bringing a swift end for the lender founded by Bundaberg farmer Lex Greensill and worth $6 billion at Christmas. And mining billionaire Clive Palmer has vowed to spend $100 million redeveloping his Coolum resort on Queensland's Sunshine Coast after it fell into disrepair soon after it bought it a decade ago. The Palmer Coolum resort redevelopment will include replicas of the wonders of the world and famous landmarks including a full-size Trevi fountain. Around 300 premium studio, two and three bedroom apartments will be refurbished in the luxury upgrade, which will also feature seven restaurants and the total renovation of the village square at the heart of the resort, which was once one of Australia's premium luxury enterprises. A centrepiece of the revitalised Palmer Coolum Resort will be the Robert Trent Jones Jr. Design Golf Course, the former home of 11 Australian PGA Championships. Mr Palmer said the Sunshine Coast has suffered due to the massive downturn in tourism over the past 12 months and will face further economic hardships once a JobKeeper program finishes. And a bitter fight looms at Minter Ellison over the exit pay for Annette Kimmett, with partners digging in over the prospect of a multi-million dollar payout for the former chief executive. Ms Kimmett and the firm mutually agreed last week that her time at the helm of Australia's largest law firm was over, but the final terms have not been decided. Ms Kimmett was only halfway through a five-year contract, which commenced in September 2018. Her salary is believed to be about $2 million, which would mean she could claim up to $5 million as a full entitlement. That sum would be paid out of the pockets of the firm's 257 partners, with each having to contribute $20,000. The board, led by Brisbane-based chairman David O'Brien, acted after a week of internal ructions and damaging headlines following the public release of emails by Ms Kimmett to staff that apologised for the hurt they might be feeling upon news that the firm was, was representing Attorney General Christian Porter. Mr Porter has been accused of raping a 16-year-old girl when he was 17, an allegation he has denied. And Big Six law firm Clayton Utes underpaid some graduate lawyers by $15,000 to $30,000 once their crippling workloads were taken into account as late nights and weekend work dragged their high salaries below what they would be paid under minimum award rates. 
Clayton had paid at least one employee about 30000 below the minimum rate, but that most underpayments were under $5,000. The effective staff stand graduate lawyers who have largely already been backpaid and paralegals and legal analysts, for which reviews are still underway. And Crown Resorts, 13th largest donor to federal politicians, will no longer make political donations. The company, which runs casinos in Melbourne and Perth, donated 184000 in the previous financial year and $1.78 million in the past decade to federal political candidates, with $550,000 of that money going to candidates from Victorian political parties since 2010 and $875,000 to candidates from Western Australia. The decision comes after a damning New South Wales inquiry where the gaming giant was found unfit to hold a casino licence as $2.3 billion Barangaroo Tower because it facilitated mm. money laundering through its casinos, disregarded physical risks to staff in China and partnered with junket tour providers linked to criminal triad gangs. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to the founder and director of Sydney-based consulting firm Fifth Dimension, Lyndall Spooner, about how marketing has changed for companies. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest wages and jobs figures. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.